0: Hello, and welcome on into to Dogs and Autumn, the history of American football. Today we'll be talking about the spread of the game throughout its original home in the northeastern United States and eastern Canada, and how the exchange among schools in those regions influenced football's development as a distinct game. I'm happy to be here, and of course, very happy to have you here as well. Before we get started, feel free to hit me up if you want to. The audience for this has come on more quickly than I expected, but I'm just a dude with a niche interest sort of figuring it out. So if you've got a football-related topic you'd like to see me explore, I'd be happy to consider it. Or if you've got some notes, suggestions, or corrections, I'm happy to take those as well. You can reach me on Twitter at dogsandautumn, all one word, or email me at autumn at gmail.com. In my episode covering the first game of football, we talked at length about how that game played under the rules then in use by Rutgers University was based on the early rules of the Football Association in England and while there was no common game in the U.S. at the time, it seems most universities played a kicking game, with a few here and there preferring something more like rugby. One school that played a carrying game and refused attempts to codify a common game at first was Harvard University. At this point, hang with me for a brief aside about language and culture. The United States has always been a patchwork of what its settlers brought with them, what they picked up or often stole from native people, and what emerged organically from the mixture of those things. Everything is hodgepodge and made more so by the vast distances between different centers of early American culture. Our sports culture and its history is no different. In the first episode, I talked about how English football games made their way across the pond through students, and that's true. But university students, especially in the middle of the 19th century, were a tiny fraction of the overall population and in the enormous pyramid of cultural and linguistic exchange at the time, they occupied what amounted to a single brick near the very top. England, as both the premier world power of the age and the mother culture to the fledgling American state, was an important influence, but the developments there understandably didn't always reproduce themselves exactly in the former colonies. Thus, we come to the strange case of Harvard and McGill's rugby-ish football games. You see, the major code of English football, even in the earliest days, was soccer. Rugby was always secondary, and it's very clear from the bulk of primary sources, the English broadly disliked the idea of carrying the ball. So for American students visiting or learning, in England, the game they were most likely to be exposed to was an early form of soccer or one of its kicking-oriented ancestors. But in addition to the size of the United States I've already highlighted, this was also a time well before mass media and most forms of mass culture. So what had transpired between, say, Cambridge University and Rutgers didn't necessarily matter in a place like Boston. Boston was one of the United States' first cities, one with an uncommonly close relationship with England dating deep into its own history. And because the relationship was deeper, the connections were more numerous, which increased the exposure Boston and subsequently Harvard had to a wider sample of happenings in England. Somehow through that tangled network of connections, Harvard students had acquired a version of football otherwise specific to 19th century Boston that allowed for carrying the ball, but only when the player in possession of the ball was being pursued. Being as there's only one ball, you have to imagine carrying it was almost constant but apparently the distinction between only carry when chased and carry always was enough to matter. More on that in a few minutes. For now, it's enough to know that the Boston code enjoyed by Harvard students was a lot more similar to rugby than soccer. They had no interest in the latter, so they had no interest in adopting games more like those of their peer institutions, at least not those in the United States. They did find some like minds though and they found them in a place that also had deeper ties with England than most places in the United States at the time. All they had to do was hop a border and go to Canada. Now, before I dive any further into McGill University, I'm going to be upfront about something. Canadian football is its own animal. It should probably be thought of as one of two subsets of the same game alongside American football, but its history is unique and much more self-consciously interwoven with rugby, and its place in Canadian culture is completely different. It's also not ideal to have two branches of one sport of more or less equal age, and only use the name of one branch to talk about both. But American football is the term that seems to scan the best for the largest number of people, and gridiron, despite being an objectively cool word, feels corny to me. So I've decided to leave the Canadian game to some other nerd. Who knows, maybe myself in the future. Either way, I'll bring them into the story when it's relevant, but for the most part, Canadian football's got its own thing going on, and I don't think I can do it justice here. But for our purposes, understand that football in Canada has a history every bit as long as it does in the United States, and every bit as convoluted, which is to say, somewhat less long and less convoluted than the history of football in England, but enough to make for prime podcast material in my opinion. It does intersect, however, at crucial points with the history of the game developing further south. At no point is that more true than it was when a team from Harvard University with their unique Boston code traveled to Montreal for a pair of games against McGill in 1874. Now, the first attempt among American universities to codify a common game had occurred in 1873, but Harvard, like I said, didn't play the sort of kicking game favored by their peers at the time and had refused to attend. Having a unique game wasn't a problem before. You just played the game the home team played on their grounds, hence the term ground rules. But now, it was a problem. As demonstrated by that first home-and-home between Princeton and Rutgers back in 1869, playing by different rules could produce wildly different results. Results that obviously heavily favored the home team. So, unwilling to give up their own ground rules, Harvard was consequently unable to schedule games against teams from other American universities. But as probably most anyone listening to this show will understand, the love of football will drive you to great lengths you otherwise might not go to. Try cutting the cord on cable and figuring out Saturdays in the fall if you don't believe me. McGill University played a version of football based on rugby, which had finally been formalized in 1871 with the formation of the Rugby Football Union back in England, but McGill played rugby with at least one crucial variation. Unlike the Boston Code, in which carrying the ball was only allowed when being pursued, the newly codified rugby allowed for carrying the ball at any time. But the act of touching the ball on the ground beyond the goal line, called a try in rugby but also very obviously the forerunner of the football term touchdown, only granted you the opportunity to kick the ball for a goal. That is, the try itself wasn't a score in early rugby. The word comes from try a goal. At McGill, they kept the ability to carry the ball at all times, but they invented their own scoring system. A try was both a score in its own right, and gave the scoring team a chance to kick the ball for a bonus score. Now that should sound very familiar and it was later adopted by both rugby union and rugby league as well. Harvard won the first match played under its Boston rules and they tied the second match played under McGill's version of rugby rules. Harvard apparently liked this version of football so much with its looser rules around carrying and the use of the try as a method for scoring that they abandoned the Boston code altogether shortly thereafter. Now if I were the one making historical distinctions for everyone else, this is where I would place the first game of American football for the record. Though I have reservations even about that, given that I cons- what I consider to be the primary distinction between rugby and football still hasn't emerged at this point, calling this the first game does a good job of uniting the Canadian and American games in a way that I think accurately captures their relationship and it gets us closer to a starting point that actually vaguely resembles where we're going. But while Harvard was busy hanging out in Canada, the other American schools weren't idle. Even though the game they were playing would soon die out, it was still important for what's to come. This is when the earliest networks of football were established, networks where later figures like Walter Camp first cut their teeth. And these networks grew pretty fast. Rutgers played a match against Columbia in 1872 which is usually considered the first football game in New York. Columbia gave the football bug to Yale. Now again it's good to hold in our heads that these teams are playing an early version of association football so the ball was round the field was enormous and they only advanced the ball with their feet but these relationships will continue into a more familiar game shortly. The Kicking Code schools came together for the aforementioned abortive attempt at codification in 1873 that would send the Harvard boys on their fateful train ride to Montreal. But Harvard wasn't the only school left out of the loop, ultimately. Football was spreading faster than communication about football. So eventually, Harvard would find new opponents on their own side of the border. In 1875, they played Tufts University in what could be considered another candidate for the first game of American football. The rules were really starting to take shape here. This game featured the same rules regarding handling the ball and scoring as the earlier McGill game, but also included the rule that tackling the ball carrier stopped play. How did we get out of this situation? On one hand, you have a large collection of prestigious American universities who have agreed to play soccer. On the other, you have a gaggle of others in both the U.S. and Canada who want to play modified rugby. This could have easily been a repeat of how it played out in England, so how did they square this into what would become the core of early football programs? The answer, of course, is hate. Harvard and Yale, for all their similarities in prestige and culture, have always shared a rivalry. For most collegiate rivalries in the United States, the hatred begins with football and spreads from there, but not Harvard and Yale their sports rivalry goes back to 1852 with rowing. Now don't worry, I am not going to explore rowing at all, but it mattered a lot to the students at Harvard and Yale in 1875. So with their matchup against Tufts, only a few months old, Harvard challenged Yale to a game of their version of rugby. So challenged, the Yale athletes agreed to play a game against Harvard and did so in late 1875 in front of a crowd of approximately 2,000 spectators which likely made it the most watched football game in American history to that point. Among that crowd was a soon-to-be Yale football player named Walter Camp. Harvard won that matchup, but with it the game, which is the name of the Harvard-Yale football rivalry to this day, was born. Also among that crowd was a group of football players from Princeton who liked what they saw and took the game back home with them. You can see where this is going. As with the Cambridge rules of 1848, The rules established for college football in 1873 are about to get an update. The Intercollegiate Football Association was founded in 1876 by representatives from Harvard, Columbia, and Princeton. Yale pulled Harvard and decided to skip it, but came back around in 1879. This organization formalized the adoption of the modified rugby Harvard had adopted from McGill, and now we're really on our way. If you imagine the early years of football as the birth of the sun, with all the spinning clouds of nebulous elements, gases and debris that will become the sun, floating aimlessly but vaguely in proximity to each other, then 1876 is the year where a critical mass of them have finally coalesced into a swirling nucleus. The IFA is the organization that will carry football forward through its first decades and the vehicle through which the later reforms which will define football as a truly distinct game will be delivered to a hungry American public. Next time, we'll take another break from the chronology to talk about the man who cast the longest shadow over the earliest decades of the sport. I've already mentioned his name several times today, Walter Camp. After we cover Camp and his reforms, we'll get back on the road starting in Michigan. As always, thanks for listening. I'll see you when I see you.